Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where an expert is given just six minutes to present her argument, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topic is the risk of a downturn in U.S. residential real estate. Our speaker today is Ivy Zellman. Ivy is a leading housing analyst, and she has won the coveted top-ranked Home Building Analyst Award from Institutional Investor. In 2007, Ivy started her own investment bank called Zellman Associates, which combines equity research with capital markets and investment and banking advice for the housing industry. I first met Ivy when we worked together at Solomon Brothers during the 1990s, where she was known as a rising star. Prior to the financial crisis of 2008, Ivy correctly spotted that the U.S. was headed for a housing debacle, and she laid out the reasons in her published equity research. Needless to say, her arguments upset the housing industry management teams, but she kept to her views and she was proven right. Today, Ivy will explain why she has a contrarian view on the U.S. residential real estate market. Ivy thinks that demand will prove illusory post-COVID, especially if interest rates trend towards more normal levels at a time when she expects a surge in housing supply. Ivy, please begin your six-minute presentation. Hey, Larry, it's great to be on your show. I'm excited for you and this new platform. A sobering moment for your audience because I am the contrarian once again on the U.S. housing market. Um, as Mark Twain has stated, while history does not repeat itself, it sure can rhyme at times. But I'll start with the demographics as demographics are really the foundation. And what's concerning to me is that over the past decade, the U.S. population has slowed to the second slowest on record this past decade at roughly 7.4%, just slightly above the 1930s population, which was the slowest on record at 7.3%. And that's really a function of plummeting birth rates as well as less immigration. Um, secondly, when you look at households, households over the 10-year period just completed actually grew at the slowest ever on record at 8.7%. And it's not just in the blue states, it's across the country. And a lot of that has to do with the combination of uh, women delaying marriage and family formation and pursuing higher education. And when they do have children, a lot of them are one and done. We also have multi-generational living where you've got what the boomers are known as the sandwich generation, where they have their adult parents moving back with them, and then they have their adult children that don't leave. And if you actually look at the number of 25 to 35-year-olds that are actually living at home, the numbers over the decade, every year after initial first three, three years of the decade unwind from the great financial crisis has been going the wrong way, which I don't think is fully appreciated. And so we believe normalized demand currently uh, for the entire market should be about a million three, a million four, and for single family, 900,000, and where our starts and what's in the pipeline are already 20% above that. And for multifamily, what's in the pipeline is probably 10 to 12% above that. The second reason is the amount of capital that's chasing this asset class. It's just gone bonkers. We've got institutional capital that's raising funds. They've got to pay a return that they promised their investors. And they don't want to go to office or retail or hospitality. So everybody's going to resi. I like to say that the resi is the prettiest girl at the dance now. But even more specifically, the new asset class built for rent is skyrocketing. In fact, we did a deep dive report called uh, a focus on the build for rent space. And that shows that over the last 18 to 24 months, just what's been publicly announced, predominantly unlevered, 
there's been more than $60 billion of capital, but only going to predominantly the red states. So everybody's concentrated in the same market, chasing this asset class, resulting in really robust inflation. Land prices, according to our proprietary land survey, are up over 30% nationwide, and where the concentration of the capital is going is up more than double. Affordability with home prices up on a national basis, approaching 20% annualized, plus what we have is lease rates running up double digits in many cities in the country. Affordability is hitting a wall. We're seeing buyer fatigue in the market, but the real risk to the market is going to be mobility will be arrested if mortgage rates were to go to as little as 4%. 4% mortgage rates will shut down this housing market. And I say that because with the exception of the millionaires and billionaires, probably some of you on the phone that can pick up and leave New York City or the tri-state area and go to Miami, you know, the general population is not uplifting, uprooting their family. And if they are locked in, if they're one of the roughly 70% of Americans that were smart enough that actually refied, Think about the number of people that will be disincentivized to move. And that will be the backlash of the Fed as the Fed's horrible policy of keeping rates artificially low too long through purchases of MBS. And when they start tapering, you've got this perfect storm brewing, Larry, where you've got risk of rising rates, significant surge of pipeline of start activity in the face of higher prices across the board, while demand, we believe, is going to moderate. So I'll stop there. Okay. What about. the fact that COVID has changed um, the actual location where, where people want to live. Um, I, and I use uh, Chicago as an example. So I, had an, I have an apartment uh, downtown, which I recently put on the market, and there's very little interest in high-end uh, Class A um, residential in Chicago. And I, as what what is really in demand is um, suburban uh, residential, which which was freely available uh, pre-COVID. Um, then, you know, there's bidding wars and people, women crying outside homes during open houses that they can't buy the house that they want. Um, and then there's a lot of building going on out there. Is this just an example of, you know, the houses are in the wrong place and that's requiring the new building and maybe lower rents or, that, uh, or lower prices where people don't want to live? Well, I think we all have to take a step back and, and recognize that COVID was, you know, an, an unfortunate um, event in, in U.S. history that changed how people uh, thought about where they were living. And a lot of that going from sort of dense urban markets, fleeing for more space and safety, especially as we started seeing, you know, crime rates surging and looting happening. We pulled forward a lot of demands. And I also believe that because of the remote work phenomena, that many people have dual properties right now. Now you just listed, you know, the unit that you want to sell. What you have is like today artificially higher demand because people have a place in the city and now they have a place in the suburbs. And they don't even know if they're going to what they're going to do because they have the employer hasn't said whether they can work 100% from home yet. So they're in sort of this like hybrid moment. I think we've actually now started to see a return to the city, especially by young people, and we're seeing rent surging in cities. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of condo sales and what's happening at the high-end luxury, which is a relative negligible part of the overall housing market, I do agree that there's still pressure, especially in, in New York and San Francisco, on multimillion-dollar-plus condos. But a forced sale market in cities like New York, below $2 million, you can't find anything, and prices are surging again. Um, you mentioned clarifying the difference between the Midwest, where the market isn't so strong, and some of the red states. Um, 
And I I currently renting in Miami Beach, and the Miami market is on fire. Um, I also hear that Austin is doing terrific. Uh, is are we just going to see just a, a real difference among certain cities that are growing quite quickly? And is it COVID related as well? That if you can live anywhere, why not live in Miami versus in Minneapolis? Well, I think you know obviously you got favorable tax based states. You know mm-hmm. both. Florida and Texas are are both no income stack too. So you do see more inbound migration and more people, you know, thinking about where they want to live longer term and, and whether it's Xers or boomers that are setting themselves up in these other cities. But it also comes down to how much supply in Austin, where home prices are up more than 30%, you've had a tremendous uh, number of new um, job, new headquartered organizations that are coming there like Tesla and others that is driving more people to relocate there. But I wouldn't want to be buying in Austin right now with home prices where they are with the amount of supply coming in Austin. Miami is more constraint, so there's not as much development, especially single-family development. But I do think that, you know, prices are not inelastic. But I think we're starting to see fatigue in the market, and we're going to start to see a normalization in demand, and that's going to come right at a time when supply is ramping. And supply right Mm -hmm. now is bottlenecked, because of supply chain issues and, you know, ocean freight sitting backed up at ports and people can't get homes closed. But assumingly, those things will become at some point um, less problematic. There is a massive pipeline that's coming. We had Steve Alloy um, on the what happens next twice before in spring of 2020 and the summer of 2020. What Steve was telling us was even though there's a COVID crisis, um, he's selling out all of his new homes and taking orders like crazy. Um, and he was very worried about, could he get the labor? Could he get the uh, materials to build the new homes? Uh, but, you know, he said margins are great. Uh, opportunity is great. Well, I think, I think demand right now is peaking. And I believe demand will moderate. But, you know, what you're also seeing is Steve Alloy, who's a good friend, would admit that he's selling homes to private investors that are trying to diversify risk by not just being exposed to the stock market. We're seeing institutional capital that have created liquidity in the market called instant buyers, where you've got Zillow Offer, Redfin Now, Open Door, OfferPad, where you can sell your house in three days. They buy it from you, charge you a fee, tell you to put some, they're going to put some lipstick on the pig, and you're going to pay those fees, and then they'll turn around and sell it. Well, what happens when you go from a seller's market where you can buy that house and fix it up and flip it? to a buyer's market where it's hard to sell that or you might let, lose money on that house. Those aren't primary buyers. They're going to sell. So in the zip codes where you've got private investors like Austin and Phoenix, you've got instant buyers, we call iBuyers, you've got built-for-rent operators that are bringing a ton of product, you have to appreciate that demand is at a level of primary demand is being clouded by fix-and-flip investors. So from my perspective, investors gone wild, but maybe with not with the leverage that we had last cycle. We have a lot of investors that are clouding it, and Steve Alloy and everyone else is benefiting from strong demand. I do not believe it's going to be sustained, and we'll see that demand moderate as it's petering out. Let's step on the gas. Let's bring more production. Let's raise prices. Let's continue to buy inflated land. Every builder on these conference calls, the earnings right now, is like, oh, we're going to grow 15%, 40%. They're all doing it at once. And they're just like, let, let the party keep going. You know, and Jay Powell's the bartender. And he just keeps serving an overserved crowd. And eventually, Larry, the drunk passes out. And right now, everybody's <laughs> high on free money. Why not? Buy a second home. Go buy a third home. Yeah, it's, 
Um, how do you compare this versus uh, like 2007? Um, what's different? Well, I mean, the, the housing market really turned in 05, that, that well before the economy started feeling the effects, at least on the new home side. I'd say that the difference is leverage. You know, we had liar loans, 100% LTV, no documentation. Thanks to Dodd-Frank, the mortgage market is pretty sound right now. I think there's, you know, incremental buyers that are probably too levered. But for the most part, the leverage or lack of consumer leverage is probably the biggest difference from the last cycle. Mm -hmm. But it's similar, too, because there's euphoria again. You know, everybody's, you know, basically getting wasted on the idea they're going to get these unbelievable returns. And they're paying, there's dumb money buying and bidding up land. Somebody's going to get impacted. And at the end of the day, it's probably the investors that don't get their returns. I want to change subjects to um, your new book, Gimme Shelter, that you just put out. Um, why did you decide to write this book? What, what, who, who was your audience and what was the, uh, the primary ideas that you wanted to uh, tell the reader? Well, thanks for asking about it. Actually, it was, uh, I started writing it a few years ago and it was really inspired by young people that want to pursue a career in finance that don't necessarily come from a traditional background like myself. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I went to a state university, George Mason. And, you know, getting a job on Wall Street was a big deal, and I wanted to inspire others. Um, your book starts out with you're getting a job at Solomon Brothers and, and the career that you had there. Um, I, too, worked at Solomon Brothers. I was there from 1986 to 1999. And, you know, I viewed myself as a lifer until uh, during the mergers, they decided to close the proprietary trading business. And so I was, I was out. Um, you mentioned the book that – you also thought of yourself as a lifer until uh, we merged with Solomon Smith Barney. And ironically, you mentioned that um, you were kicked out of Solomon Smith Barney because Smith Barney had the number one housing analyst in the form of David Dwyer. Uh, a little known fact for you, David Dwyer was my roommate for four years uh, in New York. <laughs> so we could just small world out there. Um, oh, yeah. Um, what did you think of Salomon? How did it let you grow? What was so special for you? Um, you know, I love Solly from every aspect, from the just amazing professionals around me and to really have to up my game. And to, there was so much grit. You know, people just work endlessly. You know, there was no, you know, bullshitting at the at the the water cooler. I mean, you worked. There was young people there, you know, started out in investment banking and after my two years, when I went to equity research, went through the MBA training program, despite not having an MBA. And I think it was just a competitive but um, incredibly fun culture that, you know, you're working side by side around people that are like-minded, and everybody's just incredibly high achievers. So I, I just remember it as being a lot of fun. And being at Seven World Trade Center and walking around that training floor, I don't know, being, you know, a kid who grew up in New York and being able to say I work at Solly, which was the brains of Wall Street, you know, I'm I'm really proud to have been an employee there. I wish they didn't let me go, but I actually made more money on my next move, so it worked out good for me. <laughs> and I very much miss the institution. Um, you know, another thing is is that one of the topics of the book is the role for women on Wall Street. And um, when I joined Solomon, I immediately went to work for Jessica Palmer in the Capital Markets Department. And I worked for some incredible women uh, at the firm. Um, and your growth at Salmon as a woman is, is also indicative of the opportunities available. 
Uh, that being said, it was a still it's Wall Street. It's a male-dominated culture. What were your thoughts on the ability for women to compete and succeed in that sort of place? Yeah, it's, it's funny because when I started in 1990, you know, I didn't even think of myself as a woman, even though I was one of three women out of 70 in my training program. You know, it was like I was just this non-Ivy leaguer. So I, I didn't even think of being a woman back then. I think it's more about, you know, recognizing if you're in a man's world, you know, you've got to be able to talk and hang with the guys and go in the locker room and you can't get upset at, you know, maybe the way the guys are talking or what the conversation might be that um, makes you a little uncomfortable. You have thick skin and you have to be able to, you know, throw it right back at them. And I think there's, there's times and I write about some incidences where I was, there was inappropriate behavior, but for the most part, I think it's not about being a woman or a man. It's about performance, about put your head down, work hard. And, and I think the women that survived at Solly and there were more women MDs at Solomon brothers than pretty much anywhere else. It's because they basically lived under that sort of premise. They're going to be in a boy's in a man's world. They're going to have to have thick skin. You know, we had Ann Clark Wolf on the show a few weeks ago. I don't know if you remember Ann Clark. She was in Capital yeah, I Markets. Do. Yeah, we just spoke recently. Absolutely. She's great. And she's starting this organization. I think they would call it Solomon Sisters uh, of a, a women-led investment bank. Um, how do you think – I mean, you've started your own investment bank effectively um, at Zellman. Um, tell us a little bit about what were the challenges? Um, why was it successful? Uh, why did you decide to do it in, in that approach instead of working for one of the larger banks? Well, I think it's, um, you know, I don't know if it's getting to a point in your life where I am turning 40 and I'm sitting here at, at the, you know, the boom, boom of the housing market as a contrarian and basically um, negative. And I still felt at that time, I wasn't getting remunerated for being utilized throughout the entire firm in every department coupled with the fact that I had this unbelievable Rolodex of private industry operators, C-suite owners um, and executives. And I was like, you know what? I could take this and go out on my own and, and, be, and monetize what I've built and have hopefully clients follow me. And I didn't you know, think about the things that you should think about before starting your own company that you learn while it's happening. Like, how do you actually get paid? Because, you know, Credit Suisse, I didn't have to think about that or dealing with HR and you know, establishing a broker-dealer license and going out and having FINRA audit you. These are things that you kind of learn on the job. And if you think about all those things, it probably scares the shit out of you and you would never do it. I just took a risk. And at 40 years old, I, I needed a change. What, what I find amazing about the story is um, most of the time when you're in equity research, it's like a, a, an add-on to the investment banking business. And here you, you've done it the reverse. You started with equity research, and you were able to segue that into investment banking. Um, how, did, how did you pull that off, and uh, why has that been successful? Well, I think you're right. I mean, it's definitely a research-led firm. Uh, I think that you know we didn't even think about doing any investment banking initially when we started and uh, launched in October of '07. But it was actually about a year later when my uh, co-founder, Dennis McGill, and I had been together for 21 years, and his brother approached us in 08, and he had been at uh, Bear Stearns running capital markets. And he's like, you know, you guys have this unbelievable Rolodex that you should try to monetize through investment banking. And I was like, I don't really want to do investment banking. I don't, I don't like investment bankers very much. And, and he convinced me that 
we could take what we've built and the brand that we've, you know, um, dominated in the market and we could get these companies that are, you know, our confidence and, and relationships that are so strong to utilize our services. So it was really Tony McGill, who I should credit, because he was the one that came to us with the idea and I was initially reluctant. Earlier, you mentioned HR as, as a complicated issue and what is love in the office. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was dating uh, the woman who will be my wife, uh, Julie Bernstein, when she was an equity analyst at Smith Barney. And then when Smith Barney merged with Solomon, my girlfriend worked uh, one floor below me. And, you know, I discussed it with my boss. Um, he said it was fine. We're in different departments. No big deal. Um, and then, you know, later when I got transferred to Japan, we got married. So I found love at work. Um, and that's also true for you. Um, you also found your husband at Solomon Brothers. Um, and currently, the firm, many large financial institutions, most corporations discourage um, love at the office. So my question for you is, you know, where do you stand on finding your spouse at work? You know, if anyone within my organization were a small place would find a, a spouse or a prospective spouse, that would go for it. I, I don't think it's a problem. I think it's about the person and their specialism. And I think we both know that you and I are examples where it didn't impact our performance. And I think that it's probably pretty short-sighted and you'd lose good people if you had that type of stringent policy. In your book, you mentioned that you had some health issues um, and you were very open about it. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how that affected your your business, you know, your life, how you think about your career? Um, sure. I think that anyone that has gone through any type of health crisis, for me it was breast cancer and unfortunately finding out about it within a year, a little bit more than a year since it's starting Zellman. And I had at that time, you know, my kids were two, four, uh, or no, four, six, and eight. You know, talk about rocking your world and you're at the peak of your career, you thought you were, and you're right in the thick of the housing, you know, great financial crisis. So I think that it really grounded me into what was important and to appreciate that my health mattered more than anything else. And having built, you know, a loyal um, team that enabled me to take the time I needed to get better and get through what I needed, it was only because of the people that were by my side that was able to actually make that happen, including my my husband and my sister and my girlfriends and all the people in my life and work colleagues. It, I just think it, it changed my prioritization and, and maybe slowed me down for a little bit and maybe contemplate, you know, what matters the most and being ranked or money and all those things don't matter if you get sick. None of it matters. And it's a pretty lonely road you travel when it's you. Like your, uh, your loved ones can only be there so much for you. But when it's you alone, you know, under a radiation machine or you're dealing with these challenges, you've got to really decide, am I going to get out of bed tomorrow? And am I going to keep going? And I think you either persevere or you don't. But I think it was a lot of support around me and sort of recognizing I had three little babies that needed their mother. And it pushed me forward. That's it's a great great story. Um, I want to change topics to uh, this, some of the struggles you had at work when you were a contrarian. The first story that you tell in the book is the asbestos 
catastrophe and how it would affect a number of corporations such as Owens Corning. And the story, one of the stories you tell is that the head of investment banking at Credit Suisse called you and harassed you about your negative statements about Owens Corning and then your unwillingness to back down. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what it's like working in larger institutions when you're going after a client, even though you're supposed to provide independent and thoughtful research, the challenges that you faced? Oh, it was, it was, I was scared shitless, to be honest. You know, I, I was sitting in T. Rowe Price um, at a marketing meeting in a conference room, and I get called out, which doesn't happen um, unless it's an emergency. And I come out of this big conference room, and I'm told I have a phone call, and I go sit down in the lobby, and I pick up the phone, and I, I get basically berated by, I don't even know this man. He's the head of investment banking telling me, do I know where my bread is buttered, young lady? And it was about OC, and they weren't happy with what I was writing. And I, you know, I tried to explain to him that, you know, we're, our fundamental view is what it is, and we've done the work to support it. But I didn't waver, and I didn't change my view. And I got that phone call, and it was sort of threatening, but I didn't do anything about it. I remember I probably went in the bathroom and maybe called my husband and cried. I, don't, I just think I was, I was definitely scared, but I just couldn't alter my view just because I was threatened. It just wasn't in, you know, not my DNA. How do you think of the independence of equity research, both at a large bank and then the equity independence that you now have in your own firm as a comparison? Well, I think at the large banks, um, it's tough to speak to any other bank than the ones I I, I obviously uh, was employed by. But I do think that there was, at least in my years at the bulls bracket, more pressure. And it came from investment banking prior to Elliott Spitzer with FD and all the changes that came to fruition. There was a tremendous amount of pressure to, you know, basically put out positive views, but it was never said, just sort of assumed. And I think that, that the world changed when, you know, Elliot Spitzer kind of took the, um, you know, the, 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 the veil down and everybody recognized what was going on. And I think that's where I think having my own firm, if we're not comfortable with, let's say, a capital markets transaction, we don't have to do it. Nobody's going to threaten us or tell us that, you know, it's going to depend on, you know, how we get paid. And that independence, um, really suits me because <laughs> I, I didn't play well in the sandbox with the bankers at times. And I think it caused, you know, some problems and, you know, fortunately I persevered, but I definitely had some internal battles. You know, as a contrarian in the industry, which may mean that you have, there are times when you're quite negative, like your introductory remarks today. Um, it, you, you mentioned in the book that some of the industry people would call you poison ivy or say you're uh, on a jihad. Um, what is it like to be opposed to valuations generically within your industry? I think if it hadn't been for private companies that were during the, the boom, boom period that were telling me to stick to my guns and giving me ammunition through stories they would tell me about the shit that they were seeing in the market and the craziness that was going on, it was that constant feeding me information, marrying that with actual data. So it was, a, it was tough. I mean, I will tell you, the stocks were ripping up in my face. Um, clients don't want to hear anything negative when they're all making money. And, you know, it was many nights and, you know, my husband will tell you of, of tears at home and, you know, recognizing that, you know, if I'm not right at some point, I'm going to probably get fired. And I'd say right now being a contrarian is not necessarily as challenging because I don't 
fear, fear that I'm going to lose my job or, you know, you know, obviously we have to continue to make sure that we're monitoring the market and that we're, we're our underlying premise of, of, you know, today cautiousness is warranted, but we have proprietary surveys of every silo in the housing mosaic. So whether we're talking home building, land development, mortgage, multifamily, single family rental, the brokers, building products. We have our pulse on the market. So if we have to change course, we will. We just published a report called Cradle to Grave that is available on our website, but is a definite um, sobering report that is really stirring the pot and causing a lot of friction with the industry. Back then, it was I was laughed at, poison ivy, jihad, ivy voodoo dolls, you know, that, you know, people would just basically say that she doesn't know what she's doing. So I feel more confident and recognizing that it's, it's, there's more respect from the executives that would, would have just blown me off because of the, you know, fact, if it hadn't been for the fact that I'd been right last time. I can't believe at the annualized rate of increase in prices in residential real estate nationwide. It's shocking. Um, And so, and as we, the only other time I really saw in my lifetime was, um, you know, pre pre 2008. And I think in 2005, I was already saying, oh my God, this is going to crater. And I was still years ahead away from the crisis. Um, Is it possible that this, these glory days in real estate will last, you know, a very long time. Is that one of the lessons that um, the music will play for a lot longer than you expect when you're on the short side? Um, or, I mean, that's what gets me would get me worried of shorting some of these home builders or or, um, or real estate companies. Well, we're actually we're neutral right now, so we're not short because I do think okay. that timing matters. So our research will help us determine when it's time to go outright and short and sell the stocks. Maybe it lasts for another year to two years. It's somewhat contingent on rates. And, you know, my joke is I spoke at one of the industry conferences and they said, well, what happens if mortgage rates go to 1%? And I said, then party on, you know, more free money. It's just, so I think that the important perspective is to recognize that prices can't go up indefinitely. Wages are not rising as fast as home prices. And if rates start to move higher, I think that would be a more likely catalyst to slow down the market. But sure, could it go longer um, than we're currently expecting? Because we expect 22 to see home prices still up 3% nationally and then 1% in 23. But that's for the existing market. In the new home market, we actually expect um, new home prices to go negative in 2023. Um, I end each episode on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic to watch my children's lives evolve and see where they go and and watch them grow into mature adults and hopefully get off the payroll. That's the, I'm optimistic for that at some point. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet, but I'm working on it. Yeah, same on our side. Um, Ivy, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, Larry. Best wishes for the new uh, venture. It's exciting. That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for the next episode of What Happens Next on Sunday, November 21st. The speaker will be Tim Bale, who is a professor of politics and international relations at Queen Mary at the University of London. Tim's research focuses on European and British politics. 
I want to find out from Tim what are Europe's most pressing political issues and about the ongoing success of center-right political parties. In particular, I want to hear about the future of German politics post-Merkel. Will Macron win re-election? And how does Boris Johnson fit into the mix? If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to thank Ivy Zellman for her insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned next Sunday to find out what happens next.